Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. My name is Lindsay Devon. I am a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I also serve as editor-in-chief of Pharmacotherapy, an official journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today we are talking with Dr. Kyle Wimp and one of his co-authors, Dr. Lauren Linder, about their paper titled Ketamine for the Acute Management of Excited Delirium and Agitation in the Pre-Hospital Setting. Dr. Wimp is a clinical pharmacy specialist at the Medical University of South Carolina and specializes in emergency medicine. Dr. Linder is a former postgraduate year two psychiatric pharmacy resident at the MUSC, and she is currently an internal medicine clinical pharmacy specialist at Palmetto Health in Columbia, South Carolina. Unfortunately, a third co-author, Dr. Clint Ross, could not be with us, but I'm so glad both of you could join me today for this discussion. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank both of you for participating, and um, we'll get started. I'd first like to ask you just, either one of you, a background uh, question. Your group reviewed the literature on the use of ketamine for excited delirium and agitation in the pre-hospital setting. Before we uh, move forward and discuss therapeutics, could you provide for our readers and listeners some definitions of how delirium and agitation are, are defined clinically? Of course, this is Lorian speaking. Um, I think this is a great place to start even before we go into talking about therapeutics to give everybody an idea of where we started. So obviously there are verified scales to assess delirium and agitation. Typically you see the CAM ICU, the confusion assessment method. There's also been the DOS, which is the delirium observation screening scale. In addition, with agitation, there's the RAS scale and the SAS. However, these are typically more utilized in the ICU. Um, And so in the field, we're not able to really use such a validated scale. So it's typically based on clinical judgment of the first responders about the behaviors they see with their patients. Um, Some behaviors that would suggest agitation um, could include excessive verbal behaviors, so shouting, cursing, screaming, um, excessive motor active um, activities such as pacing. They could be posturing at you and just being combative in general would really give um, the first responder an idea that this person was agitated. Um, A little bit beyond that for the excited delirium, they would have to have the agitation, combativeness, the psychomotor agitation, in addition to hyperthermia and metabolic derangements. Um, So I think those really are how we would define it clinically in the field and make a decision on whether or not uh, medication would be warranted. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Linder, for the uh, explanation. Uh, Let me follow up with another question. I'd like our audience to understand the need for trying new drugs with these patients. So what are the accepted medications uh, currently in use for patients with delirium and, and agitation? And do the current standards of care have safety or tolerability issues, perhaps, that prompt clinical trials of ketamine? I agree. I think that's a great question to start off with. What are we doing and what could be done? So typically for both either delirium or agitation, even before the medications could be considered, I think in any realm, non-pharmacological 
um, things should be attempted first. So redirection, making sure the environment is appropriate. Um, however, there are no FDA approved medications for delirium. And so the most studied medications would be antipsychotics. Um, mainly they were um, compared against haloperidol. Um, and there's really not enough evidence, in my opinion, to say one is better than the other. I think it's very patient-specific when it comes to choosing a medication for delirium. And I agree that goes hand along with um, medications for agitation. Mainly benzodiazepines and antipsychotics were studied, either together or separate as a comparison to one another of which one could be better. Um, and again, they have a multitude of limitations. Um, the main one I think though, is that they don't work quick enough in an emergent situation. Um, an antipsychotic can take anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes, even given in the intramuscular route, it can take some time to see um, improvement in their behaviors, which I think is probably the biggest issue uh, of time in general that's prompting ketamine to be looked at um, because it does provide um, swift sedation and effects that we can see in those patients, especially if they're combative and being violent. I'd like to ask either one of you to follow up on that a little bit more because um, many of our uh, members of our audience are going to recognize that ketamine is an old drug that's been used as an anesthetic for, for decades. So is there any other comments about why it should become so popular for uh, off-label uses? Yeah, th this is Kyle. Um, you know, we're, we're in the age of uh, repurposing uh, old drugs for new uses. Um, and, you know, we, we have had ketamine, you know, for decades. As far back as, as the 1950s, we were looking at fencyclidine or uh, PCP for use as an intravenous anesthetic. Um, and that was because that, that agent has a lot of what we look for when we're looking at looking for an ideal anesthetic, such as, uh, you know, characteristics such as rapid and smooth onset of action, minimal depression of cardiovascular and respiratory systems. Um, uh, an agent that has non-toxic or inactive metabolites, uh, rapid and smooth emergence from the anesthesia, and also having some level of analgesia. Uh, the problem with PCP, of, of course, was the long-lasting uh, psychotomimetic activity uh, that would occur. And so uh, people then moved on to ketamine, which structurally resembles PCP, uh, but has mu much less prominent uh, emergent reactions. and. Um, it was approved back in the 70s, but people didn't really start using it in the way that we're using it now because of concern over the cardiovascular stimulating properties um, and those emergent reaction incidents. But, but ketamine still possesses a lot of those ideal characteristics. Um, and it, it works primarily through uh, induction of what's referred to as, uh, you know, it's referred to as a disassociative dissociative anesthetic producing a functional and kind of electrophysiological disassociation um, in the brain. And this presents clinically as a state of uh, catalepsy in which the eyes remain open with a kind of a nystagmic gaze. And then, but they still have light reflexes uh, remain intact. It's highly lipid soluble, achieves peak plasma concentrations very rapidly um, as Lauren alluded to. And, and, and it, it interacts with multiple receptors uh, in, in the body, including you know, a non-competitive antagonism of the NMDA receptor, partial agonism of mu receptors, and then centrally acting on CNS structures in the brain. 
And so that's how we can have an agent here that has multiple roles and multiple effects, everything from analgesia to sedation to even decreasing airway resistance and the incidence of bronchospasm. Um, I, think, I think our audience can see that with all those properties of, of why it's becoming um, a very popular drug. And clearly the speed of onset of sedation is a, a major advantage of ketamine, but it must also have some liabilities, I think, uh, particularly uh, hypertension, uh, the need for respiratory monitoring if it's an anesthetic. Uh, and uh, I know that there are some, there's some potential for uh, psychiatric reactions. Uh, could you elaborate on uh, the liabilities of, of ketamine? Definitely. Uh, every drug has a therapeutic window, of course, and the only difference between a medication and poison is the dosing. Um, but uh, although ketamine has that lar a very large therapeutic window, um, hence while we're more comfortable using it in a pre-hospital setting with limited monitoring, uh, adverse drug reactions can of course occur. Um, due to its centrally acting activity, it has the potential to raise heart rate and blood pressure and overall sympathomimetic activity. Um, that, if that becomes deleterious, that can of course be blunted by using uh, benzodiazepines. Uh, the need for respiratory monitoring with the use of this agent is not necessarily in the traditional sense that we think of uh, with agents used in this setting because they suppress respiratory drive and leading to respiratory compromise. Uh, ketamine actually does the opposite, increases pulmonary compliance and decreases airway resistance. But the respiratory monitoring comes from the fact that uh, ketamine can uh, in induce increases in bronchial uh, secretions that can lead to respiratory compromise. Uh, this can be managed by the, through the use of an anticholinergic agent such as atropine or glycopyrrolate. Um, and then uh, as you uh, noted, there, there is an incidence of emergent reactions uh, which can occur. It's a wide range of percentages uh, in the studies and so we still need to do a lot more research to see what the true incidence of this is. Um, but these tend to uh, abate upon recovery and generally subside in the first few hours after a, a emergence from uh, ketamine sedation. Uh, there have been incidences, though, where uh, recurrent illusions can last, uh, have been sh shown up weeks later. This side effect can also be minimized through the use of um, benzodiazepines, but also using lower doses and also intramuscular administration decreases the incidence versus intra intravenous administration. So there, there are a number of advantages of um, ketamine, uh, potentially in addition to the speed of onset. But uh, I'm curious, um, is there any difference in the quality of sedation or its anti-agitation effects that would make ketamine a preferred agent over, say, benzodiazepines if speed of onset is not a major concern? I think that is a really interesting question um, and something that we, we don't necessarily have uh, full answer to, um, but, you know, from a concern regarding over-sedation and respiratory suppression standpoint, ketamine has, you know, a very favorable profile compared with benzodiazepines. Now, from a sedation quality standpoint, um, I might suggest that we, we look at um, the literature, although it's not extensive, on, on the use of sedatives in the ICU for sedation of critically ill patients. The 2013 Pain, Agitation, Delirium Guidelines from the Society of Critical Care Medicine now recommend the use of non-benzodiazepine therapy over benzodiazepines based on, albeit limited data, suggesting that benzo use results in longer ICU length of stay, and some studies actually uh, showing that there's a higher incidence of delirium with benzodiazepine-based uh, sedation therapies. And 
although it, it, they do note in that in those guidelines that there's not enough data to really give an opinion regarding ketamine, it does highlight that benzodiazepine sedation is not without neurologic consequences that can be sustained. And um, you know they go on to recommend that uh, more frequent awakenings and the use of agents such as dexmedetomidine that don't necessarily induce deep sedation um, as agents that would be beneficial there. So the ability of ketamine to produce uh, its unique state of uh, disassociation rather than deep sedation that you may get from agents such as benzodiazepines seems like it might be more in line with what we currently know and think is best practice regarding sedation. You, you've touched on another issue that I'm sure our audience will be interested in. Um, and that's correct dosing of ketamine, uh, especially since it has anesthetic properties. Um, are there proper doses? I mean, is there some way of estimating what dose is needed for a specific situation or uh, say perhaps dependent upon patient symptoms or are there standard protocols um, utilized for dosing of ketamine? So I think, I think the dosing of ketamine is of great importance. Um, but the, the exact details of that uh, can be somewhat debated. Uh, the disso dissociative dose of ketamine for intramuscular use is around three to four mg per tig. Um, be beyond this, additional dosing doesn't tend to really give you additional uh, sedative benefits. But when you actually look at the studies, there's been a wide range of doses used across the literature, with the most common being five milligrams per kilogram intramuscularly. I think each institution should review the literature and kind of develop their own recommended protocol for how to approach uh, the dosing in this setting. Um, for emergent situations, I'm really a strong supporter of pre-planned, protocolized recommendations whenever possible so that we can ensure best practice and minimize medication errors. Uh, if you think of trying to run a code without ACLS and, and how variation in practice would happen, um, you, you can easily see how that can come into play. Um, as we discussed in the manuscript, I also think it's really important uh, for entities to take into account weight estimation and obesity when designing these protocols and attempt to kind of build in buffers whenever possible. For example, if, if you say the, the studies say five mg per kg is the ideal dose, but in a real world scenario and you're estimating a weight of a combative patient in an emergent situation, you're it's not always going to be exact, and maybe you overestimate and give six to seven mg per kg instead. Um, you need to make sure that if that if that kind of situation presents itself, that we're still uh, providing safe care. And so, when we're given an agent like ketamine that has a wide range of possible effective doses, perhaps going with a lower but equally effective dose might be the ideal approach. Let me um, change the focus for just for just a moment of our, our discussion, and uh, I have a question for Dr. Linder since she has a, a psychiatric background. Um, it's been mentioned already uh, in our podcast that there are potentially uh, dissociative psychiatric uh, reactions to ketamine that are, are adverse, um, but I know that there's quite a lot of interest in using ketamine for psychiatric disorders for beneficial effects. Uh, including depression and, and possibly uh, psychotic illness. One situation in which it seems there might be a role is in the emergency department for uh, acute suicidal patients. Um, well, do either of you have any thoughts about whether ketamine will find a place uh, for uh, this indication in the emergency setting? I think this is a great question to address for our audience, uh, for sure, because it is a 
an up-and-coming topic, and we do see um, people, people who do have treatment-resistant depression come through this um, psychiatric emergency department. We also see people who are acutely suicidal. Um, I will say that I do think there are potential off-label uses for ketamine with depression. Um, it has been used um, specifically in more treatment-resistant depression. Um, typically, you see the IV infusions or the um, intranasal um, route most commonly used. And the overall findings that the studies have sh shown is that it does work very quickly. However, these effects don't last as long. The side effects reported, because the dose is a little bit lower, seem to be minimal. Um, patients do report a dissociation for at least four hours after the infusion. Um, however, I think typically with depression, I, in my opinion, making sure that we're implementing all pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic uh, therapies first, making sure we've tried an MAOI first, um, and then even going further as ECT and TMS comes into play. Um, in my experience, I have seen patients get the IV and ketamine infusions, but they are also in combination with other, you know, MAOIs, um, any other thing that they can be on at that point. Um, so I would like to say that maybe as an augmentation strategy, it could be utilized towards the end of the, if you could think about it, the STAR-D algorithm. Now, I think more interestingly, the question about suicidality um, it, in my opinion, since there's no FDA approved medication for this instance, um, I think it could be used, but it definitely needs to be used with caution. So specifically in patients who come into the ED, we need to rule out that they don't have any substance use, um, playing a role into their suicidal presentation. Also taking into consideration, um, what other psychiatric, uh, past medical history do they have? Do they have schizophrenia? Do they have um, bipolar disorder with psychotic features when they're typically in an episode? And or do they have um, MDD with psychotic features? Um, which, in my opinion, I think that would exclude ketamine being used for an acutely suicidal um, patient. Um, however, in the studies that I have looked at, they typically use a lower dose of 0 0.5 um, milligrams per kilogram via the IV route, and they give that over a 40-minute infusion. In most of the studies that I reviewed, um, they didn't really specify if you had to have major depressive disorder as an inclusion criteria, but when you looked at the overall population, a majority did have a major depressive disorder. Um, it does show a quick improvement on some of the suicidality components of the madras, um, which I think is interesting, but either way, it's not lasting as long as someone would have hoped for. Um, potentially, I think in that realm, because it does work but doesn't last very long, it'd be interesting to see if it ever becomes sort of a bridge therapy, uh, typically before we would start or while we start um, a, an SSRI or an SNRI, whatever the first um, therapeutic intervention would be. So that's where my opinion stands is that I think there is room for it. Um, I think I have to be sympathetic with their presentation, but also keeping in mind what is their psychiatric background, um, what has it looked like before. This is a very interesting discussion, and, and obviously the the utilization of ketamine uh, for various indications is uh, evolving. Um, let, you've given both of you, I think, our audience a lot to think about. 
So let me uh, conclude with just sort of a final uh, summary question. And um, if either of you would, would say, and using your intuition and experience, um, how do you see the future place of ketamine in the, in the pre-hospital setting? Is it going to replace benzodiazepines or will it just become another option along with uh, behavioral management and physical restraints? Well, I, I see the use uh, of ketamine utilization continuing to expand in the pre-hospital setting more as uh, practitioners become more accustomed and just kind of comfortable with its overall use. I don't believe that it'll ever replace benzodiazepines. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not one that believes that any drug is really a magic bullet. It, it's just going to become another option in the armamentarium that we have. Um, and we're, we're also, we need more data because, you know, there is some concern that in, in certain states of agitation, for example, uh, toxidromes where the patient has a large catecholamine surge, um, where the cardiovascular effects of ketamine could be deleterious. And we, we've looked at this in, in some smaller studies and analyses, and it hasn't really been shown that that's, that's a, a problem, but it is a theoretical concern. Um, also, as its use in, increases, as with any agent, the data regarding its adverse effect profile will become more solidified rather than having these like wide ranges of incidences that we have now. And then, then we'll be able to make a more calculated assessment of kind of its optimal placement in therapy. So our audience can stay tuned for uh, more data and more insight into the use of ketamine in the future. I want to thank Dr. Lauren Linder and Dr. Kyle Wendt for sharing their thoughts today about the use of ketamine for the acute management of excited delirium and agitation in the pre-hospital setting. Their full review of this topic can be read online through the pharmacotherapy website. Thank both of you for participating. for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.